Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 67. My name is Dominic. I'm one of the co-hosts. The other host is Janus, and you'll hear from him in a minute. Today we had the absolute pleasure to speak with Mr. P.D. Newman regarding his new book on theurgy. And what a great book it is. This isn't just a rehash of information you've probably seen before if you're interested in the topic. P.D. brings a lot of new ideas, new information to the table, and he makes a lot of interesting connections between the Neoplatonists, the Middle Platonists, the Chaldean Oracles, the Pre-Socratics, the Homeric Epics, the Greek Magical Papyri, Mithraism, Egyptian Alchemy, Asian Shamanism, Gnosticism, and much more. It really is a great book on the subject. Before we jump into the episode, we'd like to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. As always, you are awesome. We appreciate your support. If you would like to also help support the show and keep the lights on and things running, feel free to head over to Patreon and do what is right for you. It does ensure that this work continues. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, And may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome to the show. We are really excited for this episode. We are here with Mr. P.D. Newman, author of the new book, Theurgy, Theory and Practice, The Mysteries of the Ascent to the Divine, Homeric Epics, the Chaldean Oracles, and Neoplatonic Ritual. Welcome to the show, P.D. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, as we were talking before, a little bit before we started the recording, like this is a book that we were really excited about. And after reading it, like I told you, I felt like I was your target audience. It really brought together a lot of of different topics and pieces that that really belong together, and uh, you really did an excellent job. Yeah, thank you. It was ab- absolutely a labor of love. Nice. Yeah, I, I put this up there as you know, my, one of my favorite books that re- recently came out was uh, Wouter Honograph's book on uh, Hermeticism, and this great is book. A, this is a great compliment to that, actually. Uh, that's that's a high compliment. Uh, yeah, no. I've never heard one. Cool, man. So let's let's jump in. So just to kind of get oriented 
would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this topic and how this all came about? And then we'll, we'll run from there. Sure. Yeah. I, um, I grew up in the South, uh, moved around a lot, but in and around my preteen years, I really started getting into um, psychedelics, which is frankly really what opened all these doors to me, what opened my eyes to all of this phenomena. And it wasn't until I guess I was around 18, maybe closer to 20, um, I started really taking an interest in rites of passage, which is sorely lacking in our culture. But in the South, we have the benefit of Freemasonry being very prevalent. And really, I had no idea where to turn. And so I just kind of took a chance with Freemasonry. And that is what really got me thinking in terms of of ritual, of proper ritual, and, and how rites of passage work. And there's a, a Masonic Rosicrucian organization that goes way back. It's based on uh, the very first Rosicrucian order to surface after the initial publication of the Rosicrucian manifestos. And this was a German organization, Der Ordens des Golden Rosenkruzer. Um, and, and this Masonic organization is kind of, it's not identical to that, but it's its largely based on that. And once I got involved with th- that, um, my interests in other magical organizations, such as the, the Golden Dawn and um, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, things like that got me really interested in, in magical ritual, not just rites of passage. And so I spent you know, a couple of decades just digesting grimoires, you know, magical texts. And if you're familiar with the Solomonic grimoires, you know, they'll, they will refer to themselves as theurgy, as being theurgic ritual. Um, but I couldn't shake the fact that when I, when I would look to actual theurgic texts, um, books written by Neoplatonists who were practicing theurgists and looking at the Chaldean grimoires, they're they're nothing alike. And so I was really kind of faced with the problem of what does real theurgy look like? And so I decided to just kind of start with the basics. And um, I started with Plato, and uh, it wasn't until I got introduced to the pre-Socratics that I realized that what Plato was doing was really a spin on what the pre-Socratics were already doing. So I kind of took a step back, investigated the pre-Socratics, and I'm glad I did because it really helped me understand what the Neoplatonists were doing. Um, I think Neoplatonists like Iamblichus, for example, has more in common with people like Empedocles and Parmenides than he does with his Platonic predecessors. And uh, it was just a chance encounter with a, a, a reference in one of those texts that pointed to where I could find what the actual ritual looked like. And that ended up being in a book by Proclus, who was Iambicus's, uh successor. And he wrote an, a commentary on Plato's Republic. And in that commentary, he comes to a part where he's trying to defend 
Homer and Hesiod from the claims of Socrates in Plato's book that, that these ancient poets, they have to be done away with because in the Republic, he's trying to tell how, how a perfect Republic would look. And the fact that the gods do things according to these poets that we would deem amoral or, uh, you know, they murder. There's lots of things we would call amoral. And Socrates says, and I think he says it ironically, that we have to do away with this and write new myths for the Athenian youth. And that's when Proclus says, you know, this is this is absolutely not correct, and that the more amoral a myth appears is an indication of really how transcendent it is, because these they invite the reader to look deeper, and that's where things are kind of encoded in these works, allegedly. And, um, and that's what he does. He goes back to his teacher, Sirianus, and tells how Sirianus interpreted this one section in Homer's Iliad. And that turns out to be, he says, if this is mimicked with a living person, the, the, the ritual itself is a funeral ritual. He says, if this is done with a living person, that's what theurgy is. That's what it looks like. And so that was really a revelation to me. Um, and I was really fascinated with his decision or Sirianus's decision to project this teaching into Homer because I had recently read Porphyry's um, On the Cave of the Nymphs, which is a commentary on, an, an esoteric commentary on the meaning of a chapter in Homer's Odyssey. So I found it really fascinating that for, bo for both the theory, because Porphyry really, he's the first person who lays out the theory behind it step by step. For both the theory and the practice, it was discussed in terms of Homer. And of course, theurgy as such doesn't emerge until the second century after Christ. So, so can I pause you for a minute to ask yeah, you sure. something? So it sounds like what you're saying is that after um, studying Porphyry, Porphyry, Porphyry inspired you to use Syrianus as a theurgic hermeneutic uh, on Homer. Um, well, it, it was Proclus whose teacher was Syrianus. And, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Proclus. Yep. Yeah. And uh, that's what I meant. I, that's fine. Um, I'm the I'm the dumb one. So <laughs> it's true. The 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 writings of Syrianus are sparse. It, all I believe all that survives is a couple of books of him commenting on. Aristotle's metaphysics and um but he was he was a theurgist i believe he was taught theurgy by uh Plutarch of Athens and it was Plutarch of Athens granddaughter if i'm not mistaken who initiated Proclus into theurgy so the implication is that this ritual they're discussing is what was done to them uh, that there is a uh, just like Hanegraaff kind of talks about that there there is a small circle of initiates that are actually doing this kind of thing one-on-one, -on -one, and it's not just ritual theory, which is kind of the impression you get when researching theurgy, if it's not discussed in terms of the European, European grimoires or in terms of 
an application of traditional Greek religion and household religion, um, you don't really see what the practice is. And and I can understand why, because like I said, it's buried in a, a commentary on Plato's Republic, uh, which, I mean, I, I don't know how many people are reading Plato today, much less commentaries on his work by obscure Neoplatonists. But, but yes, it was in, um, it was in Proclus that really made me say, okay, this is, this is a, a, a real thing. This is a real practice. It's not just theory laid out saying, you know, if we did this and if it was done, it would probably look like this. It's, it, it's as close as we're going to get to being told what theurgy is by someone who was doing it. Awesome. Yeah. And, and, there is some really interesting insight from Proclus on that commentary of the Republic where he talks about essentially the, you know, the divine chain of beings um, and how they connect to, to Homer. And when the, the gods were acting in these very human ways, um, perhaps this was more of the, the demonic representation of the gods rather than the highest form of the gods themselves and things like that. And I really like the, uh, the attention that you've, given to Porphyry in your book. I, f I feel like a lot of people kind of dismiss him as kind of the grumpy boomer <laughs> teacher of, of Iamblichus. But, um, and I don't remember if you mentioned it in your book, but I've always been of the opinion that I didn't think that Iamblichus and Porphyry were really at odds to the degree that people really, really portray um, that relationship being. Um, what's, what's your thought on that? Um, I think that for the most part, they're in agreement. They are at odds in the same way that Iamblichus was at odds with Plotinus. Mm -hmm. And that was Plotinus's concept of the undescended soul, that part mm -hmm. of the soul is always connected to the divine, and you can't ever unconnect that. And that, that was one, issue, one thing that, that Iamblichus really took issue with, because he said that to really understand man's purpose and man's station in this web of creation, man has to be where he is. Um, we, we serve the, the purpose of being a kind of bridge between the between nature and the daemons, and the daemons are kind of the bridge between us and the gods. So if, if we're not really down here in this body doing this st stuff that humans do, then Yambukas really felt that 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 it's not that it, there's no point in it, you know. And and Porphyry was really invested in what Plotinus had said. And Plotinus is a notoriously difficult um, read. His Enneads are are they're often. I think in his mind he was making it as clear as possible. But the way his mind works, he was so brilliant, um, and he does. It's such a large collection of works that you do get the the impression a couple of times that he he's contradicting himself. But I think there are nuances to this that we're only just really figuring out how to tease out and and understand the context some of these things are said in. But he does seem to imply that the soul part of it remains with the one. And um, Proclus solves this problem by discussing the one in the soul. And he gives us this impression when he talks about the hypostases, which are, are the Platonic equivalent to what we might call the Holy Trinity. But there's a the monad, which is the one. Then beneath this is 
the noose or the, the mind, the intellect of the one, and then suke or soul, the soul of the ones. And then below that, we have matter. And the way Proclus looked at it, which I thought was kind of brilliant, is that that means that the ground on which matter stands is soul, and the ground on which soul stands is intellect, and the ground on which intellect stands is the one. So that means naturally that at the base of each of these phenomena is the one before it, or the two before it, or the three before it, if we're looking at nature. Mm-hmm. So his his idea of the one in the soul it was his way of solving that problem, but they do seem to be at odds in that regard. Yeah, and that is a, a real well well put, and that is really a, a brilliant take on Proclus's part because because can you really separate these things um, and draw hard lines? And it, it seems as though they are very intertwined mm-hmm. and and not really as separate as we'd like to intellectually kind of portray them as being. Or we could even say that they're contingent uh, contingent upon one another and interdependent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Proclus had this idea of you know reversion that he, there's the projection and then reversion of the energies yes. that come from each of these so when when the one it kind of overflows it's in its fullness well at some point that overflow reverts upon itself and when it does intellect is created and when intellect overflows, its reversion is soul. And so it really is this one continuous flow, almost kind of like a fountain. Or if it, 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 it's kind of difficult to visualize, but I see something like a fountain, a tiered fountain. Mm-hmm. And in Gnosticism, this is this is uh, essentially what's being discussed when they're talking about the the unlimited the unlimited ben- benef- benevolence of the father mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 flowing forth of the pleroma from from the uh, paternal depth right right and pleroma of course it means that that divine fullness right and you, you see some yeah. things in hermetism which makes sense because they are connected by you know through platonism um so let's back up a minute and ask the question about theurgy itself, and if if you can define that for us, um, contrasting it with maybe what you were discussing earlier as far as uh, Goetia, sorcery, um, what are the differences, similarities? There's a lot of similarities in terms of the practices, but the goals are different and the models can change. Um, But theurgy, I think, is best understood when placed against liturgy. Liturgy is... It's most people think of like Orthodox liturgy, which is the Catholic and Catholicism. It's called the Mass, but in Orthodox Christianity, they call it the Divine Liturgy, and that's fine. We can talk about it in terms of of that because I think it's most easily comprehended that way. But liturgy basically means the work of the people. It's, it means the public working, and the implication is that that public working is with God or with the gods. Whereas theurgy, it means the work of the gods. Basically, it's a combination of two Greek words that mean deity and work. So it could mean the work of the gods. It could mean to work with the gods. But my my way of approaching it is saying, well, liturgy is God's work with the people, whereas theurgy is one man's work with 
God or the gods. Um, because the, the ultimate goal of theurgy is union. It could be union with the daemon. It could be with the demiurge. It could be with the one, depending on how high the individual is climbing on this ladder. Um, but that's also what we see in the Orthodox liturgy. They're communing. We call, even in, it's called communion um, because they're communing with the God through theophagy, through eating the God. And uh, this notion of eating the God is present even in theurgy. And it's even present, um, as Walter Burkert points out, in, in uh, traditional Greek religion, when they sacrifice an animal that's sacred to a specific deity, the tendency is to then eat that animal and commune with the God as that animal, because their worldview is there, there's nothing secular for them. The, the Egyptians had a similar way of looking at the world. Um, everything is sacred. Everything is divine. So when when and even the Orphic perspective, even the Orphic perspective embraces that attitude. Mm. You know, what you're describing is so essential because in the ritual, in the actual rite of the liturgy, we have procession and reversion embodied in the the sacrificial acts because the sacrifice is offered, and when it's offered to the god, it rises through the daimons to the god, and then the the energia of the god impregnates the material substance and when we consume it through the reversion of offerings, we're we're literally consuming that the 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 body of the god itself. So the the theophagy is something that embodies both pr- procession and reversion mm-hmm. in itself. And and if you go even further with it, the impulse to perform the sacrificial act originates in the deity. So we have the procession of the impulse to complete the sacrifice which originates in the deity, and then the priest performing the sacrifice, and then the deity receiving the sacrifice, and then we receive the sacrifice back into ourselves, and we receive the deity into ourselves. So it's a really amazing actuation of the idea. And we see that in the Egyptian cannibal hymn. Mm -hmm. We see it in the Dionysian mysteries. So this is what people, detractors of of true sacramental Christianity, authentic Christianity, uh, don't seem to understand is that it is the continuation of a tradition that precedes it. That's right. And even in Christ's sacrifice, it's really a combination of a number of different forms of sacrifice, both in ancient Greece and in ancient Judaism. Uh, So in that, Christ does fulfill this role as the sacramental sacrifice. And I, I personally just, I think that's probably the best way to comprehend it. Um, but when you talk about the the divine coming to us and us sending up to the divine, I read something really great in Frithjof Schuon, who was a, a traditionalist, um, brilliant man. And, and he was talking about, I, I think it's in James S. Cutsinger's collection of his Christian writings, but he says that we we send up our aspirations um, in the form of prayers and offerings and rituals, we send up our aspirations to the gods, and in return, the gods send inspiration in the form of possessions and oracles and things like that. And that's what inspiration means, to take the spirit inside one. 
Yeah, like respiration. Mm-hmm. It's 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 has to do with the new the the pneuma, the divine pneuma, which enters into our suche and animates the vital winds right. of the soul, uh, causing a, a um, circulation of the divine energies within the soul, which in turn activate the latent divinity of the human, which is the microcosmic representation of the macrocosmic. Uh, man god the anthropos. which makes it easy to see why it was so important for yamblicus to maintain that we really are down here you know and before i lose the thought i just want to mention too that another amazing innovation that that yesu instituted was was this bloodless sacrifice because not only as you said it is a continuation of hellenic and um and uh, Judaic forms of theurgy. And I think it could be argued that even the Judaic forms of theurgy arose as a result of contact with the Hellenic mysteries, um, which, which I mean, the, the Passover, for instance, actually didn't occur until after the Eucharist, uh, the time of the Eucharist. Uh, we know that now for sure through scholarship. But be that as it may, um, what's in- even more interesting to me is the fact that we have a Logos sacrifice. Uh, you know, Christ is the Logos, the Word, and that's a bloodless sacrifice. And where do we see the spoken sacrifice? We see it in the Hermetica. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We see the sacrifice of speech being a holy and truly pneumatic sacrifice. Uh, yet, that sacrifice of speech, because the when, when we understand that the, the Logos sacrifice is a hypostatic sacrifice, that the Logos, uh, it's a pleuromic sacrifice, then the the necessity of a material sacrifice it becomes unnecessary for for the theurgic rites mm-hmm. at least in that context i think yeah it, it yeah. does and and you really see this um kind of unpacked spelled out in dionysius the areopagite the uh pseudo dionysius you'll see the the scholastics call him but he he put so much emphasis on that that silence beyond speech and without really understanding what speech was in that context, it's really difficult to, to grasp what he's getting at. But I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. Well, we even have the Aeon Sige in, in the mysteries of the Gnosis, which is a, which is a aspect of, of the, the the transcendental mother. Mm, mm -hmm. Hecate and, and the Neoplatonist writings becomes becomes suke um which i think is a, a beautiful correlation the, the way hecate is viewed by most practitioners even today is so far removed from right her high status and among the neoplatonists and the the practitioners of this this these chaldean quote unquote chaldean rites could you elaborate on that on hecate's role Yes, and how, how and the difference between her role in the telestic rites of the theurgists as opposed to her role in the current modern Instagram world of faddish performative mm-hmm. pseudo paganism. We in in modern, um, we'll just say witchcraft. She's she's kind of become the goddess of witches, and I think that's fair so long as witchcraft is placed in its proper context and not in this kind of uh, dark and creepy 
aspects of it. And she, she does have that um, because she, the role she plays in ancient Greece is um, she kind of, she holds the keys that keep the Titans inside of Tartarus, the deepest corner, the deepest pit of Hades. And she shows up in the Eleusinian mysteries as being um, uh, there, there, there. She's viewed, there's different myths, but she's either viewed as the one who helps Persephone get out of the underworld. She's viewed as uh, a, a helper to Demeter and, and, and some, she becomes the very psychopomp that carries her across that threshold. The more popular version has, has Hermes accomplished this because he's he's the the psychopompos par excellence that carries the souls of the dead into Hades um, and takes them to the the ferryman that gets them in in and and it's very important to understand when discussing Hades that the the conception of it was very much that what got in there didn't get back out and what was in there didn't get out except on certain occasions when Hermes escorted them there. So that, that really is important when understanding the significance of the Eleusinian myth, but she, she's the keeper of Cerberus who just like her, he guards the gates of, of Hades itself. And that's her kind of her pet, um, so she naturally gets associated with these kind of dark underworld things. But in the Neoplatonic tradition and in the Chaldean oracles, she becomes more than that. She's not just the, the liminal goddess that separates these two domains um, as a guard and as something scary. She literally becomes this the carrier, the buffer between every single one. The Neoplatonists align her with Suke, but if you look in the Chaldean oracles, she shows up in more spaces than that. She doesn't just act as a conduit between nature and noose. There's a second Hecate. Uh, we could call it a second one. We could call it another function of the same one, but she's also between the one and the noose between the monad and the noose. So she becomes this, this liminal figure that transcends and allows us to transcend those boundaries that, that are self-imposed in a lot of ways. So that we need to impose these limitations on these ideas to make it make sense to us. But in practice, it's by virtue of Hecate that we can transcend them. And I think that's a, a much more wholesome view of what she does in this tradition than the way she's seen in modern practices of witchcraft. And I have lots of friends who are practitioners of witchcraft, um, and I think there's a lot of good things about it. Um, but I don't think that that view is particularly helpful or even fitting in a lot of cases. Well, also, I think that your point about these things that we can't fully understand is important because the the scope of this reality surpasses our perception and our ability to intellectually conceive it, which leads us to a sort of, um, the only way to really grasp it is by a type of um, meditative absorption and like agnosia, mm -hmm. 
in 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 the Greek, the sort of unknowing where you transcend the limitations of your own perception and consciousness, and you can only do that through the aid of of the divine uh, leading you beyond yourself to have the cosmic vision. In the oracles, it's spoken of the cosmic womb of Hecate mm -hmm. and the triple girdle of Hecate, which are the 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 boundaries. You could say ring pass knots, and I think it's interesting because her girdles are serpents, and that definitely is uh, is consistent with the symbolism of the Ouroboros as a representation of limitation and time, and and her 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 triple girdle, as you as you so eloquently stated. Her, she she stands at the boundaries between each of these uh, levels of reality, and so her triple girdle. That's what each of those serpents in her in her girdle represents a boundary between a higher and lower uh, reality. Very well put. Yeah, I agree. I, I I think you stated that very succinctly. And we've been touching on it, but I'd like to maybe dive into it a little bit more specifically. Um, the idea and the differences, and I, and I like this in your book that you point out kind of this evolution of the pre-Socratics um, and the catabasis, I'm not saying mm -hmm. this correctly, and the uh, uh, anabasis, the difference where where there's originally this idea of descent into the underworld as, as kind of this spiritual journey, and that becomes more of an ascent uh, later on mm -hmm. with the Neoplatonists. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so in the pre-Socratic days, uh, and pre-Socratic is really not a fair term because it's an umbrella term to address what are sometimes very different ways of looking at the world. But at the same time, there's a lot of crossover. And the acquisition of divine knowledge in the time of the pre-Socratics, prior to Plato, basically, um, the acquisition of this, this divine knowledge happened in a catabatic descent into the underworld. And they would do this ritually um, by retreating to caves. We see this with Pythagoras. We see it with uh, Epimenides, uh, where they would spend sometimes decades in these caves in the underworld symbolically. But not all of it was symbolic. When we look at Parmenides, for example, he really says that you know that that basically the ground opened up and he went into the underworld and met this goddess there who at at a three way road a crossroad but three ways which is a symbol of hecate um he is, meets this goddess who gives him this new picture of reality of the world. And it's often stated that Parmenides is the father of logic. That's fair to a degree, uh, because I do think, you know, prior to that, it does look like the rationale behind behavior at the time wasn't necessarily logos, but mythos. So, you know, today, of course, in complex studies of logic there's all these equations to prove what logic is and things but we don't need a notebook and a pen and a calculator to to determine whether or not a given action is logical it's it's natural to us we we can look at something and we could say oh that's not logical or it is logical mm -hmm. and it seems very um like we take that for granted to a degree but prior to parmenides 
if this is really a new thing that he brought, well, prior to him, the world doesn't turn on logos, but mythos. So the the way you determined how rational a particular behavior might have been in a given scenario is more to say to yourself, what myth am I participating in? Am I acting out? What myth am I repeating? And what behavior, once you know which myth you're kind of living in, then what's the best course of action based on a precedent by gods and and myths? Now, we, I know, we don't know for certain if that's how they viewed the world, but I think that's, if, if he is the father of logic, that's is a pretty profound revelation that that he brought that back but at the same time when you read his poem there's nothing logical about it and it's a it's a view of the world that kind of it's where we get this notion in platonism that that which is thinking is also for being and so it it tells us that not only are our thoughts real somehow that they participate in something real but we ourselves are thoughts and that there's very little if any gap between these between thinking and being and uh, we could spend hours just on that mm-hmm. um well you know it's interesting to me is you're talking about the the way that it's how essential it is to discern the myth that is influencing the pattern of our lives. And uh, uh, that that really is related to the theurgic process because the, the henad that's at the root of the soul from which the soul proceeds and in which in in which is clothed the soul as a garment, that the myth associated with that deity literally becomes a formative, you could say, subtle structure. Mm-hmm. in the life of the person, especially as that deity becomes activated in the life of the person. Carl Karanyu talks about this in terms of the archetype and the ectype. The, you know, the archetype is the is the influential principle, and then the ec, the ectype is is the the imprint or that that form that is really you could almost say it's the shadow of the the deity cast upon the life of the person and upon the fate of the person. And that's why it's so essential through this theurgic process to come to know that divine principle from which we personally proceed because different choirs of souls are associated with different divinities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost like if you're familiar with Kurt Vonnegut's writings where he talks about the the caress, you know, the different souls that are here for the same purpose, but might not even know one another, but they're all participating in the same mm-hmm. reason for being here. And, and um, Empedocles is another one that while he himself doesn't discuss a descent to the underworld, it's clear from his fragments that he was preoccupied with it. He 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 talks about bringing back the, the strength of a dead man from Hades. And, um, and when he the symbols surrounding his death, for instance, he's in one version of his death, he throws himself into a crater and Mount Etna. Um, and well, the crater the, is the volcanic entry point, but 
this becomes an entry to the underworld, an entrance point to the underworld. And the crater itself, if you're familiar with the Platonic writings, with Timaeus and with the hollow flank in Hecate's thigh in the Chaldean oracles, this, this crater notion is very specific to both Hecate and Suke, which is, like we said earlier, is personified, anthropomorphized as this goddess figure. And when it erupts, it spews out a single bronze sandal. After he throws himself into the, the volcano, it erupts. Well, that single sandal is referenced at least twice in the Greek magical papyri in terms of Hecate, that her symbol, her, her suntamata, her symbola, is this single bronze sandal. So in the pre-Socratic times, with all of these major pre-Socratic um, philosophers and poets, divinity was contacted through a descent. Now, when Plato comes along, he reorientates this notion of soul flight. And I like to point out that it is soul flight. It's We still see it in, in shamanic cultures where modernity hasn't completely overtaken it. That this, this idea of the soul being the center of the individual's thoughts and emotions, whereas the further back we go, even in Homer, it looks like the soul is this shade, this echo of the self that gets quieter and quieter and dimmer as time goes on. But by the time we get to Plato, the picture of the soul changes and the orientation of that soul flight changes. The soul becomes the very center of the individual being that then casts off the body like like a, a, an, a garment or something. And when he does this at the same time, he allegorizes Hades. And in and, and Plato, Hades becomes where we are now. And the descent into Hades from true life becomes the allegory for how we got here, for incarnation. And so once this was done, naturally, there's nowhere to go but up. You, you can't go down any further if this is the bottom of the barrel that we exist in. Well, and that is so significant that you're saying that. We see this again. We see this recapitulated in the writings of Paul and in primitive Christianity, including Gnostic Christianity, where this world is definitely referred to as Hades. Mm -hmm. And so there again, we have a precedent in a very long tr mystery tradition of understanding this world, this realm, as mm -hmm. Hades. That's right. That's right. And, and it, it puts Plato a spin. Is... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it puts an interesting spin on the the story of Persephone as well, and and makes me wonder, you know, is is life really death of spirit, and you know, physical death, you know, more more of a life and birth idea. Right. It, it, when you look at some of the forms of the Sophia myth in terms of Persephone's descent, but instead the incarnation of a soul here, it all of a sudden makes sense. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Christianity is absolutely rife with Platonism, uh, and, and it's what I believe its true form, its earliest forms. And a good example is when Christ is performing the, the Last Supper. And he says to them, this do in remembrance of me. Well, the word he uses for remembrance is a conjugation of anamnesis. So any 
the, the anamnesis being the divine remembering, one's divine origins, one's soul origins. And yes. he educated Greek at the time that heard him say that, it's almost like a meta-language, because by saying that, he evokes all of Plato. They would have said, oh, he's talking about Plato. He means that this ritual is going to cause me to have divine remembrance. Gnosis, right. yes, exactly. And and that and that's concur that's consistent with the Amblicus, who literally says that the enactment of the divine rites, the telestic, the theurgic rites are gnosis. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a great point too. Yeah, it, it, it's all often overlooked. And your mention of of Paul, I mean, that's spot on. You know, it says that he goes to the third heaven. Well, this is a different model from the seven heavens that has the Ogdoad beyond it. The the way it, in the Paul tradition, it's looked at is Suke encompasses all of the seven heavens. Then, well, that means that's the first heaven and the second heaven beyond, or depending if we want to call sublunary space a heaven. But what Paul is implying by going to the third heaven is saying that he went past the first level of suke, past the second level, which would be noose, and then united with the third heaven, which would be the one, or if we're going to say sublunary counts as one, that he made, then he made it to noose, um, to and united with the demiurge. But in either case, I think it's important when bringing that up that, to point out that it's it, he didn't go to the the third level of the planetary spheres, he went beyond the planetary spheres and either way of looking at it, mm -hmm. the, the, the nine becomes three for him. Um, and Dionysius, I think he, he doesn't spell that out, but he does make it make more sense. And in Dionysius, the, the teaching is that he converted after hearing Paul give that talk at uh, Mount Aries. So that's why Dionysius is immediately seen as a continuation of the Pauline tradition and the the inheritor of it. And he really does keep theurgy alive in the Christian tradition. He, he even refers to the miracles of Christ as theurgy. He uses the word. Um, and, and this uh, modern Christian traditions have just gotten so far away from from that model and it still lives in in a lot of gnostic christian traditions but then at the same time i feel like the gnostics not all of them had a really full picture of what plato was saying that the uh, demonization of the demiurge is a good example the, the demiurge in plato is is the noose whereas in in a lot of these gnostic traditions he becomes yaldabaoth the the blind idiot god you know created by the by Sophia without the permission of her consort and I think all of those all of those myths are useful but it's a it's such a different picture and a radical departure from I think what was happening in in hermetism and in some other gnostic sects so well said and you know what's funny is we're really we're kind of the Amblicus fanboys on this podcast as you probably have already picked up I'm a good company <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Iamblichus, he really, he's amazing because if you read him, you get it all. You mm -hmm. get it all. You get Neoplatonic Theurgy, you get the mysteries, you get Hermetism, and you get Gnosticism, 
There, Iamblichus discusses the ontological uh, placement of the archons. He talks about the multiple demiurges in reality. He he talks about sacramental theurgy. So I feel like Iamblichus. I mean, I the depth and breadth of his mind is staggering to me, and he. It's like when you read De Mysterious, you see that he is really trying to address every single one of these issues, which is really the work of a hero priest. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And it's fair to even call it hermetic. Uh, you know, it opens with oh, his yeah. discussion of of all true priests being priests of Hermes, no matter what tradition. Um, so right at the, the beginning, right off the bat, he's he's aligning what he's saying with with hermetism. Now let's unpack that, BD, because you you're a great person to maybe say. Well, so what do you think he means by that? All true priests are priests of Hermes. Why? Well, I think for his view, so with everything becomes generalized, and I don't mean that in a bad way. When when we're talking about uniting with the one, with the monad, well, the sun itself becomes the vice regent of that. It doesn't. Be, it's no longer just a heaven in the progression. It is in one model, one sense of a model, but when we're talking about the 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 perfect symbolon of of the the one here, the sun naturally fits for that, and it becomes the model for that ascent. Well, Hermes is the one that goes back and forth between that. He's the one that, as we said, he if some it becomes daemons in the older tradition like when when we look at uh, plato's uh, symposium where diotima she says that a daemon is anything that exists between man and the gods and then she goes on to say that eros is a daemon um well hermes becomes the i don't want to say archetype because that could be confusing he becomes kind of the the catch-all for anything that goes between two things. And so by aligning all priests as being priests of Hermes, I think he's basically saying that when we make these sacrifices, the guy we're handing them to is Hermes, even if it's a specific daemon that descends from a a, a different syra or the, these chains that descend from the one. And And the way he's looking at it is, we're all when we act as priests, we're we're acting in concert with Hermes. Well, the very act of priesthood is doing Hermes, is is Hermetic. acting Hermes. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Priestcraft in itself, sacrifice in itself is Hermes. Hermes, there are two beings in the Greek and the Hellenic understanding that are associated with sacrifice. And it's been suggested that they may actually be two names for the same God in a Titanic and Olympic form, but Prometheus and Hermes, because you you could even say Prometheus is the Hermes of the Mm. Titans. And then you start to see an interesting correlation between Odin and Loki. But without going there, because that's way off of what we're talking about, the, the Hermes is said to have instituted the tradition of sacrifice among mankind. And also to Hermes is said to have instituted uh, to give him, to have given mankind fire. Mm-hmm. And so the fire of Hermes, which is transmitted, I would say is the fire that Heraclitus speaks of. 
which is the super celestial fl flower of fire, the fire that girds and girds the universe and unites it together, the pneumatic mm -hmm. fire mm -hmm. of the noose. And I, I and what is the fire but the sacrificial principle? Uh, the sacrifices that are passed through or put into the fire. So the fire and the sacrifice are primary, and those things are primary to priesthood. What I'm getting at here is that if you look at one of Hermes's names, Hermes Angelos, Hermes the, the angel. angel, he's the angel of Zeus. And the Angeloi, the angels are also, angels also precede, precede Christianity. Mm -hmm. An angel is, is just, you know, when we're talking about the procession and reversion, the angels, the, the daimons uh, proceed from the divine into matter, transmitting the life of the divine into matter, and the angels bear the souls of the heroes and the substance of the sacrifice up to the divine realm. And Hermes is the archetype of all angels because he's the angel of Zeus. He's the first angel. Right. And Angelus so, means messenger also. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that, that, that's, what I, that's what I'm exactly what I'm getting at, that all daemons become mercurial messengers in a sense and this idea of him being the the angel of zeus we see the same thing in egyptian religion and you know, it's almost a, a a trope at this point to say that hermes and thoth or tahuti are the same being in different countries but even when we look at the texts he's called the the heart and the tongue of the highest Egyptian deity in that in the creation myth. Um, so he yes. is he's the mouthpiece. And when we say the heart, you know, for us in modern metamodern man, we think of the brain as the source of our thoughts. But that's not really how they looked at it back then. All the sense of self was was more at the heart of the person, the heart of the being. And uh, Jeremy Nadler, he has a great discussion, and oh, he's so Nadler. incredible when he talks about the the compartmentalization of different bodily senses in the body. How how part of what we would think of as um, an emotional or intellectual process are allocated to the feet or to the hands or to the chest, um, but this notion of Thoth being or Tahuti being the, the his tongue and his heart, it really ex expresses the connection between the tongue and language and speaking to to the self. And at one point, Proclus he's talking about something that Socrates says, but he draws a connection between the Greek word for to call, to call out, meaning, you know, to project myself outside of myself and the sound of my voice and beauty itself. Um, because the words in Greek are very similar. But what he's basically saying, he, he he's saying that the the smell of a flower is that flower beyond itself. It's, it's a calling us, it's alluring us to it, which that space between that's being covered by the voice by the word that's where hermes also feels becomes the logos you know he's equated with the logos a lot especially in alchemical traditions but that space that's being filled between the caller and the called 
becomes, I think the way Proclus puts it is it becomes a mean, like a ratio um, between the two. But I, I, I find that really a fascinating way to look at it. And he, and then he goes a step further and equates that with, with beauty, with the form of beauty, which in later Platonism becomes the good itself. You know, so Hmm. Hermes becomes both the, the word spoken. He's the voice. He, he, and he becomes the very embodiment of beauty in this regard. I think when, when he's talking about the call, I like to replace that with the scent of a rose because it's easy to think about that as alluring, whereas with speech, it could be deterring or alluring depending on what we say, what we choose to say to a given person. But with the rose, I think it's a much clearer concept because it's always calling us to it. And it's that divine reversion that's implied there. Nicely put. And I want to mention too, if you look in the eighth book of Moses in the Greek magical papyri, Hermes is actually described during the genesis of the cosmos as a god holding a heart in his hand. Mm. And then there's also a hymn to Hermes, Hermes, Lord of the universe, whose temple is the heart. So this concurrence of Hermes with the heart, and if you look in the East, in uh, Indian traditions, the planet Mercury called Buddha is associated with the Anahata chakra, the heart Mm -hmm. chakra. So so the, it's a very consistent association of mercury with the heart and and this it's you, this may be strange to people who consider him a merely intellectual god because it goes back to an earlier tradition of of really the heart being the true mind and what's interesting about this too is biologically they've found in the past I don't know decade or so that there are neurons in the heart that we do think with our hearts mm. and to the Egyptians, when you're during monomification, the brain would be extracted through the nose and thrown in the trash, fam. <laughs> and the 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 heart though was very carefully preserved mm-hmm. because that was seen as a seat of the soul, and that's why the heart is the the eb or the or the ab. And if you reverse that, it's the ba, the soul. So the heart soul or the soul heart is is so important. And Hermes is essentially daimonic angelic nature. I think is important, and that's why the Platonic idea of the archetypes, I think, is essential too, because people need to understand that all of the daimons and the angeloi are cast from from the the dye, the mold of Hermes. So they're all his form, and when you understand that, then you can understand the way that their forms, being cast from his form, are resonant with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the association with beauty, um, the and in, in, in the heart even the natural associations for us today for those kinds of concepts are, are Venus, the planet Venus, which harbors those kinds of ideas, but in Mesopotamia it's not Hermes who has the ability to descend into Hades and come back out. It's Inanna who is able to descend and she is representative of the planet Venus. So those the the crossover here is that both of those internal planets and inter- planets and by internal I mean 
in, in between Earth and the sun, not beyond Earth, whereas other planets have this the natural orbit that the sun follows. They rise in the east and they follow the ecliptic and, and set in the west. Well, Mercury and Venus don't do this. They have a, a, what appears to be an irregular orbit because of their placement inside between the sun and the Earth in our, in our actual orbit. Um, but this positioning, you know, it, when you look back at the earliest astrological writings, there doesn't seem to be a distinction drawn between Venus and Mercury. They almost, it looks like they confuse them as being one one planet that shows up at different spots at different times, a morning star and an evening star. And Venus itself meets this criteria. She will rise in the east for a time, and then she doesn't seem to keep going over our heads into the ecliptic. She dips back down. But that's what they're telling us with that myth of Inanna, when she descends into Kerr, the, the Mesopotamian underworld, in order to confront Arishkagal, who sits on the throne of the underworld. Well, Arishkagal in the Greek magical papyri is combined with Hecate. And one of the spells, she's called uh, Hecate Arishkagal, or the other way around, I, I forget. But these, all of these associations are very natural when you know the history behind them. And we might, you know, we're spanning countries and, and epochs, and, and but it's, it, it's all very natural symbolism that uh, once you understand how it fits, it makes sense to call Hermes the beautiful and the heart and Tahuti. There's the, the tongue and the heart. And uh, uh, it, it doesn't just have to be an intellectual concept that Hermes is just sort of like a science whiz. You know, he, he transcends that in, in a big way. That's so, so, so well said. And we, our entire work with this podcast is dedicated to him. And I've said, attested to, born witness to and will continue to um, personally state that Hermes is not just a concept or, you know, this far-off idea or this aloof deity that might be interested if you make the right sacrifices. Hermes is a very real presence, a uh, very caring God, very real God. And he's known He's he's known and described uh, as his Jehuti, Thoth, as caring, caring very much about human beings and being compassionate to our plight, to the plight of the incarnate, and and being a sure aid to humans, and also he's an aid to heroes, which again neoplatonically and theurgically is interesting because the theurgic art is the telestic art is the heroic art, mm -hmm. so it also is you know mystically saying that Hermes is the aid of the theurgists, but he's also the aid of the common man. He's also the aid of the person seeking employment. He's the aid of the heartbroken person. He's the aid, aid of those seeking protection while they're on the road. So in him also is that essentially daimonic character that bridges extremes of you have this high exalted the angel of Zeus, he's in the highest level of the cosmos. He connects us to the most subtle and refined realities and to the cosmic noose, which surpasses our understanding. And yet, he's also present here on earth with us, able to assist us in the uh, necessities of our daily vicissitudes. Mm, I love it. Yeah, that was uh, spot on. I, I couldn't have said that better. Nice. And so, so to 
bring us back down to earth a little bit. Um, I know we wanted to touch on this before we we wrapped up, so I want to make sure we leave enough time. The picture of theurgy as a practice. I'd like your your thoughts on it, um, and maybe we can go back to what we had talked about earlier with with the Homeric epics and proclifs, and maybe talk about Achilles, the theurgist, mm, and and sure. how how theurgy looks on a practical level. So that is the big question, and mm-hmm. really what I think is the beauty of my latest contribution in that book. Um, the, theor- the, the theory behind theurgy is basically what we've been discussing here, this, the, this ascent of the soul up into the, the supernal realms and uniting with a daemon or a deity or the demiurge or the one. But it, it's essentially this notion of the self almost expiring and it's becoming a god. And uh, I think it's important, too, to to really spell that out. It doesn't mean that that you're uniting with the God in this sort of sexual way. It means that you become the God. It's a potentially very scary idea that I don't think a lot of people have a good grasp on what that means. Um, But in terms of how it's done, well, to for the soul to ascend, you have to die. It and and in most of these traditions, these kinds of experiences are reserved for the deceased. After they die, they go through these things. But for the theurgists, they said, "No, I don't. I don't want to wait. I want to do that now." And so the notion of of a death ritual seems natural. Uh, at least in the beginning. And I can't discuss this without going back to Socrates in Plato's Republic saying that we have to do away with these ancient poets because they paint pictures of the gods that are not necessarily appealing. And he says, no, we we have to stick with these myths. These are sacred, and I'll tell you why. And he goes to tell what Syrianus taught him. Syrianus was so loved by Proclus that they were actually buried in a twin burial together. Um, and, and he saw him, Proclus is incredible, the most prolific Neoplatonist there was. And he he's always tipping his hat back to Syrianus. And what he had to say was that the ritual takes place and is, is spelled out in Homer. And he the word he uses is mimesis. It, it, you mimic. To mimic this is what theurgy is. Well, what exactly happens in Homer? And the way it relates to what Socrates was saying is Socrates points out that he says, for example, one of the bad things that these poets have taught us is that Achilles took 12 prisoners of war and threw them on the funeral pyre. Well, the funeral pyre he's talking about is, um, I believe it's in book 23 of the Iliad, where Achilles is fighting alongside his companion Patroclus, his best friend, very close pair of friends. And Patroclus is murdered. And Achilles is overcome with grief. And he lays down and falls asleep and dreams that the soul 
of Patroclus comes to him out of the underworld and basically says, look, I am miserable down here. I belong with the heroes, not down here with these normal lesser souls. And if you would just get up off your butt and perform my rites, meaning this funeral ritual, I will have the opportunity to get out of Hades and go be with the other heroes. And so when Achilles wakes up, he wakes up with a start and he jumps up and he says, okay, I have to go do this ritual. And he proceeds to build this big, what's to be a funeral pyre, stacking up all of these, these logs and making this huge, almost like a tower. And at the same time, there are games going on um, where Craters, golden craters are one, crater being like a giant uh, mixing bowl for mixing wine at a symposium. So there are games going on. It becomes almost like the Olympic Games, and it's happening around this funeral for Patroclus. Well, he throws those 12 men on this pyre, and Patroclus says, well, what this really means is it's a reference to Plato's Phaedrus, where the gods are said to move in a train. Um, all 12 gods are circling with Zeus at the head. And they're, they're all, all gods and, and supernal beings in this model are orbiting. They make circles. Circles are seen as the most perfect form. Whereas here on Earth, we don't necessarily make circles. We do all kinds of erratic movements. But the perfect motion for a soul in this model, is this orbiting, this circular motion. And that's what the gods are doing. They're following each other in this train. And so Syrianus says that these 12 prisoners of war, each one of them becomes a, a token of one of those gods. He's building the train for Patroclus's soul to follow, to get in line with. And at the very beginning of this ritual he's performing, he can't get the pyre lit. Um, it keeps going out. So he makes an, an invocation to the north and the west winds, and he needs them to blow to this wind to blow to kindle this fire. And Proclus explains that this is because these have to do with the cleansing of the soul vehicle, the okima. Um, and, and I don't think we have enough time to totally go into what the okima is, but it's it's a fascinating concept of a soul vehicle. And Okima is a chariot. So in, in Timaeus, when Plato has the demiurge construct the world, and then he attaches to each star a, a, an Okima, a little chariot that makes it move, that animates it. Anima meaning soul. And of course, Socrates in another place gives the the the, the allegory of the soul as a charioteer pulled by a good horse and a bad horse. So the soul vehicle came naturally out of their reading of Plato. And so these, these winds are specifically to cleanse the soul and its vehicle. And at this point, the, the, he gets the fire lit and they pour offerings on this. This is when he offers the 12 people that Socrates opened this discussion with. He puts their bodies on the pyre and Achilles takes a crater, just like what was used to mix wine with other drugs and to dilute it at a symposium. He, he takes one of these giant craters, fills it with wine, 
and then he takes a what's called the the double cup, this two-handled cup that is sacred to the Dionysian tradition and the mysteries of Dionysus. Instead of getting these really thin, easily spillable cups and drinking from a, a community crater, like at the symposium and the Dionysian rites, each had their own cup that was very stable, not meant to spill, and they get their own allotment of this wine. So this 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 is their share of wine. And this is important to understanding what Achilles does next. So he proceeds to circumambulate this fire with Patroclus's body burning on it. And he takes the double cup and takes out of fills it up with wine from the crater and pours it onto the fire. Now the crater is what Plato has the Demiurge use to mix soul, to mix anima mundi, which again, remember, that's Hecate in the Chaldean theurgic tradition. And Hecate is said to, again, have a, a hollow flank in her hip, which is a, a euphemism for her vulva. But it's this cup that she has from which gushes soul. So this crater becomes all soul. It becomes the anima mundi, the the, the complete world soul, whereas each cup that he's filling and pouring out comes to represent, comes to signify Patroclus's individual share of soul. So one is the, uh, Proclus calls one the fountain, the fountain of souls, which is the crater, and then his individual share is one at a time ladled out and poured on this fire. Now, the act of pouring it on the fire naturally will create steam as soon as it hits. And this process of converting it to steam would seem to me to be a, a natural uh, indication of, of it becoming pneuma, of transmuting matter into spirit to send it up on the, on the heat of these flames. And he does this all night long. And finally, at the end of this scene in Homer, he looks and he sees the morning star rise, which is again Venus. And Venus in in the ancient astrological traditions, she's the psychopomp, not Hermes. And they were often conflated and thought to be one star. So just as when Inanna in the form of Venus, she's able to descend into the underworld, which what we're saying is Venus, instead of traveling overhead, it's able to go back under the horizon, enter the underworld, and then it gets back out again, which nothing can do without a, a psychopomp. It's a, it's, it's a magical action because once something gets in, they don't get out without the psychopomp to guide them. So when he sees Venus, the morning star, rise before dawn, that's his signal to stop, that the ritual's over. This isn't obviously isn't spelled out in Homer, but my reading of it is that that signaled to him that with Venus's ascent out of the underworld, so too did Proclus ascend mm. and leave that underworld territory, leave Hades, in order to travel with that star as though following in the train of the gods to go join where he should be, which is where the heroes are. Or if we want to say that he's forever orbiting with the other gods and their, and their train, 
both are fine. One would be a religious model. The other would be a platonic model. But in either case, that signals to Achilles that Patroclus's soul has left Hades, and he's been successful in this ritual that he's been performing. Nicely put. Um, there's so many things we can unpack with that. Um, I mean, we could talk about the mixing bowl that you find in the Hermetica. We've got, you know, the Mithras liturgy, which we can branch off and talk about. But I think this is really an interesting idea. I especially like the implication that this doesn't have to be done just for uh, rituals uh, for the deceased, necessarily. Like, this is kind of a model for the the ascent that an embodied person who who's still, you know, of this world can can go through to kind of shed these layers that are associated with with the planets um shed all these layers and shed all this baggage and essentially die in a way to um kind of find that higher self and coming from personally coming from a mahayana buddhist perspective um one of the main things there is that everyone has this buddha nature inherently but it needs to be, all the layers need to be carved away in order to find it. Um, so this is a really interesting model for for living rather than just for for dying. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it, it's, it's um, what you're describing is catharsis, this purgation mm-hmm. of all the dross. And this is really where theurgy and alchemy cross over. Um, one, they seem to be different traditions, but their goal is the same mm-hmm. because they're both trying to capture something of a pure form. Now, where the theurgists do it with their practice of animating statues, for example, they're taking the the suntamata and symbola of, of the gods, which would be if we were talking about a, the sun god. We might we're going to choose something from each kingdom of nature that doesn't represent that sun. It is that sun, that mm-hmm. god on all of these planes, almost like a fractal, is one way you could think about it. But we're going to take gold from the metal kingdom. We're going to take roosters and lions from the animal kingdom. From the plant kingdom, we'll take sunflowers and heliotrope. And all of these things are combined to to gather the little bits of the God up, almost like we're he's been dismembered and we're remembering him to use a, a play on words Utsavinis uses. We're remembering the God by building this statue, this animated statue. And by taking the little bits from each kingdom, we're getting all the different parts that have been scattered around in order to capture something of the whole. Mm-hmm. form whereas in alchemy the goal is to purge everything except the form to just leave that essence and to to take away anything superfluous that is not that form and and those things we're taking away are that dross those in the the corpus hermeticum it becomes um it, it's they're like tunics in the poimendres where it, it this is this exact kind of model and ascending through the spheres is described. Each of the vices of the planets are cast off and the soul goes up a little higher. So in this model, when the soul incarnates, it's descending through these seven 
just planetary mm-hmm. heavens, just like Inanna descended through seven gates when she went into the underworld. And with each of these, these descents, these levels of descent, the body acquires a planetary tunic, for lack of a better description. Mm-hmm. And that tunic has both the virtues and the vices of each planet. So if we're talking about Venus, the virtues might be beauty and and artliness, but the vices might be lust and indulgence and things mm-hmm. like this. So it gets both of them. So dance of the seven That's veils. Right. So when she descends to when Nanana descends to the underworld, just like the dance of the seven veils version of it, um, she casts off one layer of clothing mm-hmm. until she's totally nude. And Inanna does the same. It's not all clothes. She casts off her her breastplate and, and a necklace and a crown. But the idea is that when she gets to the base, to the bottom of this, she's completely nude. And this is a mirror of what the soul goes through. And I think the best way to think about it is, well, she's a god and we're humans. So the god naturally has to descend to get down here if we're going to take a platonic interpretation, whereas the soul being down here has to ascend and go through these levels. But as it ascends with each planetary level, it casts off that vice. And in some teachings, it even casts off the virtue. Both go because both are part of that planetary tunic and it finally gets light enough to where it leaves the realm of fate which is what those planets signify they Mm -hmm. signify the soul's fate um and 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 enters the ogdoad and the ogdoad it's it's the realm beyond causality um and it's where the daemons exist so when you mentioned earlier about the the daemon well the the way of calculating the name of your daemon and then only working with that daemon is another way of doing the same thing. It's supposed to relieve you of the effects of fate and causality because now you're acting in concert with something that's beyond them. And th- right. this is kind of Zosimos's thinking. He, he was the first alchemist. He was definitely a, a hermitist. But he's got a, this student named Theosabia who's learning astrology from the Egyptian priesthood. And he's telling her, no, astrology, that's that's how you get trapped in fate. That is fate. Right. You know? and, and she says, well, but they're just teaching me what she calls propitious astrology, as in how to determine elections, to do decide the best day to do certain things on. And he says, I don't care what they're teaching you. If you cast a a horoscope for an election and then do what it says, guess what? You've just enmeshed yourself further in causality. You know, whereas he's saying the philosopher's stone, which in this case would would be an analog to the daemon, has the capacity to free the soul from that causality. Right. And the Yemblicus says very similar things as well. And I mean, they were essentially contemporaries and, uh, Another plug for Wutta Hanegraaff's book, he he makes a, a strong and interesting point that of Iamblichus and Zosimos both being hermetists. Uh, right, absolutely. Which makes complete sense to me, 100%. So, if you were to give advice to aspiring theurgists seeking to establish their own effective practice in our time and age, what would be some guidelines that you might impart onto them? I think I, I would probably echo the sentiments of the late 
Algis Ustavenes, when he said that theurgy, to the degree that it is theurgy, is demiurgy. And so he's saying to mimic the demiurge. And, well, we obviously can't see the demiurge. What does that mean? It means to not be a radical exception. Don't try and just think up something to do and do it. Do what everything is already doing. The best advice I could give would be to try your best to get up when the sun rises. Rise with the sun. Try your best to go to down to sleep or at least stop your daily activities when the sun sets. Um, and get yourself in tune with natural flow. Because we are natural flow. We have this free will component that allows us to say, no, I'm not going to catch that wave. I don't want to surf today. But theurgy, effective theurgy is surfing. It's catching a wave that's already coming, not trying to, to do something contrary to it. And you can imagine that swimming against a wave would probably be one of the most difficult activities you could choose. Whereas catching that wave and actually saying yes to the world. You know, I think that's an important aspect of it. We are so free to say no. And I don't mean this in terms of letting someone take advantage of you. I just mean in terms of saying yes to the world and its processes and its cycles and understanding your, that you are a reflection of that and integrating yourself to it. I think that is probably the best way to get involved in theurgic practice and go get yourself a copy of um, the the uh, almanac the they put out every year, the Farmer's Almanac. I tell this to all my students, get every year, get a copy. Now, it doesn't mean what's in there is what's going to happen to you next year, but this is an indication of the way the cycles are taking place where you are and your hemisphere. Um, and I think foraging is good, a good practice. Learn what plants grow at what times. And in that process, learn what planets or gods they're sacred to. Because in this worldview, the sunflower doesn't represent Helios, it is Helios. So understanding how the gods manifest where you are in your region that's breathing the same air you are, Learn that and get in tune with it. And I think that's probably the best advice I could give. Fantastic and beautiful answer, actually. Um, not what I was expecting, but um, makes total sense, and I really love it. Um, in addition to getting that almanac, I would also encourage people to go out and get your book. As I mentioned, Theurgy, Theory, and Practice, The, the Mysteries of the Ascent to the Divine, Homer's uh, Homeric Epics, The Chaldean Oracles, and Neoplatonic Ritual. Uh, really fantastic book. Um, great work. Congratulations on it. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. Yeah, no, we, I, I really appreciate the time and effort you, you put into this because there's not much out there. It's it's an essential contribution to the emerging field of, of, of theurgic studies. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful resource to have on the shelf. Before we close, I just want to actually mention something I like. Uh, that you included at the end of the book, which is the Homero Homero Mantion. Mm. If you want to talk about that for just a little minute. Um, sure. I think, you know, earlier we mentioned that we send up our aspirations in the words of Frithjof Shuon, we send up our aspirations 
to the gods in the form of prayers and offerings, and they send down their inspirations in the form of possessions and oracles and the like. And this is an oracle that is directly involved with Homer, with, with I think the majority of the phrases that are you that are in this oracle are phrases spoken by gods or heroes. So they're divine utterances. And it, it, you have to keep in mind this really mod, pretty modern concept of having a holy text, a sacred writ um, with the, the Torah and the, the New Testament and the Quran. Prior to Homer, that didn't exist. There was no no uh, compendium of divine utterances. Everything was in this kind of bard tradition where it would be sung and there'd be music and it'd be interactive. And well, Homer and Hesiod were really the first ones to say to sit down in in that region and say, well, let's let's write it down. Let's get all these myths down on paper. And in that process, they naturally informed all of their successors of of how that previous tradition viewed divinity and divine actions. And so what this this oracle does, um, it it calls for three dice. You could use one die, one die. And back then they were using a sheep's knuckles, which are naturally six-sided. And they would call it a cipher. These same ciphers show up in Gnostic initiation rituals where they're ascending through the heavens and they have to show the right side of the cipher of the die to the archon to get into that level of heaven. So these die have very sacred significance already. We kind of just associate them with gambling and games, but they're they're sacred tools. And each one, just like a modern die, is numbered. And if you throw roll three and they land in a line, you collect up those numbers, which each one is naturally going to be between one and six. For all of those possible outcomes, this oracle has a statement, an utterance made by a hero or a god. And that becomes your oracle for the day. And it's followed with a uh, a little outline of what days are good to divine on, what days are not good, what days you can only do it in a certain time of the day. Um, and I should mention that those aren't the months. So if it says the first day, it doesn't mean January 1st. It means the first day of a given sign. So closer to the 19th to 21st of a month, the first day of that that individual Zodiac timing is how I understand it. Um, but I've used this oracle for, let's see, going on three or four years, three or four years now. And I'm just astounded by it. What I do is I let it, I, I'm still not completely settled on whether an oracle, when you do it this way at the beginning of a day, whether or not it predicts your day or programs your day. And I don't think there's a way to know that, but I do know that living in the rhythm of this and letting the the divinity come through, the element of chance. And if you've read Carl Jung's commentary on the, it's, I think it's a foreword or an introduction to the I Ching, where he talks a lot about the the element of synchronicity in that. 
and how we're really participating with something beyond ourselves by doing an oracle. And this Homero Menteon, Menteon meaning it's the same root as um, mentis, which is to be an oracle, to... Um, it's also the root of words like, you know, manic, um, because of the frenzy, as Agrippa would call it, the frenzy that you have to go into to have access to these statements. But in this, you don't have to be in a frenzy. You can just throw throw your dice and uh, figure out the numbers and go look in the book, which is actually the the text in its entirety. I reproduce in my book, but it comes from the Greek magical papyri. So. You know, definitely get yourself a copy of that if you don't have it. The only thing that I changed was I changed out the translations of the phrases from the Greek magical papyri to those of Richmond Lattimore, who I adore. I think he, his translations of Homer and Hesiod are, are at my absolute favorites. Um, so I changed those out just simply for that reason. But it's a very simple oracle that I find to be one of the best I've ever worked with. And I've worked with many. And you know, something about an oracle like this, um, it brings to mind the uh, Oracle of Ifa, mm. in, which is used in, in Yoruba-related traditions, Yoruba-derived traditions. Ifa is, is fascinating. And, it, it's, it, it, it's very similar to geomancy, but with the benefit of oracles with it, oracular stories and statements. Yeah, it's amazing. And because it's part of a living spiritual tradition there's there's a technique to it too where okay say you use an oracle and you get a fortunate outcome great but say you get an oracle and you get a misfortunate outcome well then what what you do is you perform the the appropriate sacrifice the appropriate mm -hmm. ebo and that can that can offset the misfortune or change your fate and i think that it's useful i have an astrologoy I have another knucklebone divination oracle from a similar from a similar time, and it states the gods which are associated with each oracle, and and that's very useful because then you can go, okay, well, you know, this says something that's not so great. Well, I'm going to make a sacrifice to these gods and ask for them to provide me with an adjustment to my mm -hmm. fate. Very similar to the thwarting angel concept in the Testament of Solomon. You're going to try and propitiate the the, the bad thing that could happen. And um, this, I think the sacrifices, they can both help you avoid a negative outcome and help you encourage a positive one, depending on what your reading was. Um, like make the most of right. it, yeah, for and sure. I, I've personally... I don't know much about Ifa. Uh, I've read a couple of books on the practice um, and on, on Centuria or Lukumi, uh, what in Cuba they call Regla de Ocha. Um, but I am involved in Palo uh, Kimbisa, a form of Palo Mayombe, which is uh, Regla de Congo. So one is Yoruba-based, the other is Congo-based. But in Palo, we don't have, a, we don't have anything like Ifa, um, so I, I personally I haven't worked with it, but reading about it, it is incredibly fascinating. Now, one thing I want to mention, I think it's appropriate in closing, is that Hermes being, and this is so interesting because he's associated with the heaven within the cosmos, but then he's also, he his true heaven is the Ogdoad, the, the realm of eight. 
the the eighth plane, the eighth realm, the eighth climate, the eighth heaven. And that's amazing because the hometown of Thoth in Egypt is literally called Eight mm-hmm. Town. Mm-hmm. And he's, Mercury um, is also um, the eighth Sephira in, in Kabbalah. Oh, yes, Hod. Yeah. yeah. And, and so he is above fate and was understood and is understood to be able to adjust fate, to change fate. That's a great point. So if, if you see that you're that there is a potential for you to incur some kind of misfortune, you can supplicate Hermes and ask him to change your fate. That's why, you know, they even say in the one hymn I quoted earlier, the Moirai's fatal thread and dream divine you're said to be in the Moirai are the fates. Mm -hmm. And he's said to be above them. So he's one of the only gods that can actually circumvent Himarmene, he, the the and when we talk about fate, what we really mean is the operation of the cosmic rulers, mm-hmm. the planets, the destiny. That's right. Fant- so. uh, uh, fantastic point, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up before we close because that that is a great point that um, we can outstep fate. And it seems what I said earlier about my advice that to participate in the way things are. I don't think those are at odds with one another. With with we're always going to be subject to our destiny, but I think there's a lot to be said for saying yes to it, even even if it seems like something negative. Um, it it in itself can be an act of worship, but then again, these oracles, those are also divine and if if we can get a leg up on something that's going to take place that maybe we can be alerted to it to some degree i i think that's incredibly beneficiary and they do exist in a number of traditions it, it's not it's not like this is unique to greek or egyptian religion that this oracles as divine utterances from the gods you know they the to bring up uh, Lukumi again, they'll take the cowrie shells, and those are known as the the mouths of the Orishas. That when they cast them, those are simply because of the element of chance involved. It makes it divine because, of course, if we could interfere with it, it's no longer divine. It's 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 something. It's techne, but that that element of chance is something we have no control over. Um, just like our our destiny so long as we don't know about it so yeah thanks for bringing that up that's a great great point to leave it on so where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you uh to learn more about what you do um you know do you have a website um, perhaps a facebook page and and do you offer any services to people things like that i we're working on a website i i have a small consulting company um i work with individuals on uh, existential and metaphysical things. We, we work with dreams and what we can do throughout certain life scenarios. And there will be a website for that soon. Uh, the The company is called Helios Consulting, LLC. Um, but until I get that website up and running, uh, I try to stay active on social media. I'm not the best at it, but uh, I do try and get on about every other day at least and and post something about what I'm researching and uh, 
what I'm what I'm doing, what I'm writing, and uh, you can find me. Uh, all of them are under my name, P.D. Newman, and um, I'm glad to discuss this kind of thing with anyone. I mean, I you guys probably know just as well as I do that my wife is sick to death of hearing about <laughs> all of this stuff. <laughs> so, so I, I I do relish the opportunity to discuss these kinds of things with, uh, with individuals who might not even really know what it is, but that does give me an, an opportunity to kind of revisit some of the basics and, mm-hmm. and really my passion is in, in teaching and, and, kind of just being that finger pointing at the moon to borrow a, an Eastern phrase. So yeah, reach out to me and and I'm glad to discuss this, all of this kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for coming on the show. I'm sure everyone listening got a lot out of it. I know we did. Um, and just keep us updated on, on what you're doing and we can always alert people uh, to it on our through our platforms. I sure will. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been so wonderful to have you. It was a fantastic discussion, and I, um, I, I loved every second of it. It's so nice to be able to talk about things like this with somebody who cares as much about it as you Likewise. do. Likewise. You guys are doing the Lord's work. Keep it up. What an excellent conversation on the subject of theurgy, don't you think, Dom? Yeah, I'm I'm always interested in in conversations about theurgy, so I'm I'm game uh, at all times. But this one was was particularly interesting to me, mainly because it had a fresh angle. Uh, PD brought kind of a fresh take, which was nice on on theurgy. Because the big question is always, you know, what how was theurgy practiced, and and everybody just shrugs and and then moves on. But he had a pretty compelling argument to make on what it could have looked on based on actual source texts. So I I found that really compelling and interesting. So uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I'm grateful for this. It was such an such an intriguing conversation. And it's great, because as you know, we really want people to embrace experimentation with theurgy we want people to engage with it in more than just an intellectual way we want people to try to experience what the reality of theurgy is because of the effect it has on the soul and the possibility of divine contact that can be made or contact with the diamonds these things make it worth it they make even the baby steps when you're first starting out have value because sometimes profound things are in the simple. What an erudite guest. He really understands the subject matter in detail. He's excellent at describing it, at, at articulating very, very deep ideas. I feel like he did so well with making these ideas accessible and, uh, interpreting them in a way that made them understandable to someone who might be coming from a more basic place. His grasp of the Greek philosophical tradition and its roots in a really shamanic uh, katabasis and then this developing into the anabasis of the later uh, theurgic philosophers 
is intriguing. The, the arc of development is so interesting to me, and it links together the entire philosophical tradition, really. So we have a book to review today, I believe, right? Yep, I'm going to field this one. I think you've done the last one or two. It's called The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way. Um, it's a philosopher slash, I guess you could say, priest character um, from 2nd century CE. It's uh, Nagarjuna's Mula Madra Maka Karika. And I don't know if I said that right. It's a juggernaut as far as a philosophical text. And it's extremely interesting, but also very difficult to understand because Nagarjuna's mind was so profound. So this is actually a translation and commentary by Jay Garfield. And it's uh, an excellent, excellent uh, commentary. Mr. Garfield shows a deep understanding of the material. Essentially, the the main gist of the book is um, sunyata, which we've talked about on the show before, or interdependence, essentially. That's discussed in the book. And the Two Truths Doctrine of Nagarjuna is discussed, which essentially talks about reality as being um, both empty in an ultimate sense, um, but also admitting that there is a conventional reality that is just as valid. And in talking about the middle way, in addition to that particular idea, it also addresses the idea of eternalism versus nihilism, um, how both extremes could could lead you astray, and, and the middle path, the middle way, is the ideal path to take. Um, and that's what Nagarjuna tries to lay out in the book. And again, the way he lays it out originally is very dense and could be very difficult to read, definitely not for a beginner. But Mr. Garfield makes it extremely accessible and understandable um, in a way that you would not be able to grasp most likely on your own unless you were a real scholar of the subject matter. So great book, very insightful, especially if you're interested in Nagarjuna and early uh, Mahayana Buddhism. The book is The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way, translation and commentary by Jay Garfield. Thanks for that. Very good, very good. Well, folks, we appreciate you tuning in for this program. Uh, keep in mind also we have several interviews uh, on different aspects of theurgy on our podcast. It's one of the primary focuses. So if you're interested in this subject, take a look. In, in many of our prior episodes, we have had uh, uh, we have had Gregory Shaw on the show. We've had Angela Voss. We've had Christopher Plaisance. Christopher Plaisance, Jeffrey Cooperman. Or Cooperman. We've had Edward Butler on the show. So if you guys are interested, we have lots of material here. And I think that if you listen to all of these as a series, you would learn a lot and it would, you'd be able to jump right in and start doing the things. So just a rec recommendation, it might be something interesting for you. Yes, absolutely. Anything else? Nope. Okay. All right. Thank you all for listening and we will see you in the next episode. <laughs>